When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Daniel Ben-Korin. And me, Farah Jassad. So this is another episode in our Intelligent Times series. Intelligent Times is a partnership of events between Intelligence Squared and the New York Times, bringing New York Times journalists, reporters and editors to the Intelligence Squared stage. So this week we had Willem Dafoe, the renowned actor, in conversation on adventure, experiment and a life in the movies. So he was in conversation with Matthew Anderson, the European culture editor of the New York Times. So tell us a little bit about the episode, Farah. As you know, Willem Dafoe is a renowned actor, perhaps best known for his acting roles in films such as Spider-Man, Aquaman, Mississippi Burning, Finding Nemo and Fantastic Mr. Fox. He really has a broad repertoire of films and genres that he's worked in. And of course, his upcoming film, The Lighthouse, which is a black and white metafiction in which he stars alongside Robert Pattinson. And in this podcast, which was a live event which took place in front of a big London audience, he discussed his long and varied career in film. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And just before we go to it, I wanted to also let you know about the other podcast series that Intelligence Squared has called How I Found My Voice. It's presented by the BBC journalist Samira Ahmed. And it's all about how prominent public figures came to find their voice from growing up their childhood experiences to the defining moments in their career. In season two, which has just launched and you can listen to now, we have guests from Michael Palin to Richard Branson, Naomi Klein, the whistleblower Chris Wiley, the British MP Jess Phillips and more. Check it out. Just search for How I Found My Voice on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast. Thank you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, Willem, for joining us uh, this evening. Willem Dafoe, everyone knows him. He's done every conceivable type of picture. He's done superhero movies. He's done highbrow auteur numbers, Hollywood blockbusters, and experimental curios. And we all recognize that incredibly expressive face, but we also know the voice, which is um, voiced animation numbers and narrated documentaries as well. In more than 40 years, Willem, you have done more than 120 pictures and you've garnered four Oscar nominations. And that's not to mention the experimental theatre that you have done uh, with, um, with the Worcester Group. So getting ready for, the, for this interview, I was looking through uh, IMDb and looking at all of the roles that you've played. And you know, it ranges everything from uh, the Green Goblin in Spider-Man, uh, a pot-smoking Vietnam vet in Platoon, kindly manager of a flea pit hotel in the Florida Project, the voice of a cheeky rat in uh, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, and not to mention historical figures, Vincent van Gogh, Pier Paolo Pasolini, T.S. Eliot, and even Jesus of Nazareth. 
I was at a bit of a loss to <laughs> how, where could I find the through lines and how could I sort of draw it all together? And it's, it's certainly, it's a crazy collection. What's the method in your madness when you're choosing these roles? Ah, oh, it's always different every time. Uh, you know, and also you're talking about 40 years of working, so I've changed, my methods changed. But um, one of the things that's beautiful about working in the movies, or for that matter, working in the theater, is it is different every time because your job is slightly different, the approach has to be different, um, and who uh, your colleagues are uh, is different. And I like that. So it really gives you the opportunity to take different points of view and try out different things. Certainly there's certain things that, you know, you return to, and if they work for you, they tend to be safe places for you. But sometimes even those, you can't go to them given the nature of uh, what your expectation is. In that list, I'm not seeing a lot of safe places. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I get it, but... I feel much more comfortable when I feel like I'm sticking my neck out than I'm doing something um, familiar. And I would probably say that, that the most difficult uh, roles to do for me are when I've gotten into a situation where I've really arrived at it and I'm not, um, I'm not, you know, you lose your curiosity or you think you know what it is and then you just execute uh, you just apply a kind of uh, technique to it. Um, I think it's often best to be a little off balance. Um, and if you get used to being off balance, that's a place of strength. And uh, that's, I try to find that place. I guess that would be the through line. I try to find that place where you're you know, sometimes you have to trick yourself where you're curious, you're receptive, you're, you know, open to having an experience. It's not something you know. You're going towards something. You're trying to learn something. And then once you learn something, you have a shift of how you think and a new way of being is suggested. And if you're willing to apply that to another scenario that isn't your life, then that's when you start to feel you know, flexible and feel like you're, uh, you know, being that character. One thing I did notice was there's a lot of very strong directors who have very mm. definite visions of what they want, recognizable visual styles or very um, particular ways of working. Uh, and I was thinking particularly about Wes Anderson and uh, David Lynch, some who you've worked with. Wes Anderson, you've done a lot of pictures mm -hmm. um, with. What is it about him that attracts you? His precision, uh, the fact that there's no one... You, you see a Wes Anderson movie and it's uh, his, his view of the world. or it's, it's got a very personal stamp on that. And I, I think I like that. I, I, when I see someone that has a very, very particular way of working or a particular way of looking at the world, I like attaching myself to them and going towards their mentality and trying to embody that, trying to help them do what they can't do because they're on the other side of the camera. It was Steve. So I like being an extension of them. That's, those are the happiest situations because there's something about, I mean, this is suspicious because actors are, you know, notoriously egocentric, but, you know, really to free yourself, 
you have to get rid of yourself and attach yourself to something that's you've got to reach for, I think, and you've got to learn something, you've got to extend yourself. And when you have a strong director, your appetite for doing that is much stronger and you feel clearer. Did you know his pictures before you... I did, you I did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was The Life Aquatic was the first one that you... Yes, but I, I knew his pictures and he, he used to come to the theater and I met with him and it's kind of interesting because I said... At one point I said, Wes, I'd love to work with you. And he said, yeah, well, you know, I, I've just cast this movie, Life Aquatic, and it's going to be quite a long process, and I'll see you in five years, basically. And then he called me a couple, a couple months later, and he said, someone dropped out. Who was that? <laughs> I'll, I won't give you the name, but I'll give you a little game. Uh, I give you some details and then you can figure it out, but I'm not going to say okay, yes or no. Okay, we'll do it that way. A European character actor who took another job for the money <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I, I, I'm not going to give his name. <laughs> the character, you ended up playing Klaus Daimler. He's a Klaus sort of German, Daimler, and that he's a sort of German blowhard, isn't he? Who, yeah, yep. beautiful role. Um, and something, you know, and particularly when I was younger, touring a lot with the Wooster Group, we toured a lot in Germany. So I had a real feeling for the kind of myth of German efficiency. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and growing up in a very Germanic part of the United States, also I knew that as well. So I thought there was something very charming about that character, about... Uh, when you're working with Wes Anderson, you know, I think we can see, looking at it, that he's got a, a sort of very clear sense of what he... But how does he communicate that to you as an actor? How do you know what he wants you to do? Um, you know, he's very good at working with what you're, you're bringing to it. But I must say that the way he worked in Life Aquatic is very different than the way he worked, like, in uh, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, for example. Um, because Life Aquatic, there was, there was much uh, looser approach. He, he shot these very, very long shots, and he'd kind of fold different elements into it. He had the basic idea, and sometimes we'd work all day on choreographing and timing out for the camera and for the actors a shot that might last s several minutes and had lots of working pieces. If you think of his movies, if you know his movies, uh, I'm sure you can imagine this. Um, we'd work on it all day and then we'd shoot at the end of the day and if we got one take that was good we'd go home <laughs> or we'd keep on working until we got it but no coverage um, and that was very different than uh, Grand Budapest where it was very precise to me that sounds awful when I'm like all of this effort just no, for one shot no it's wonderful shot. you know it's, it's like some people think wow you know he's, he's got such a specific idea wouldn't that be suffocating where am I being creative the truth is and I think this has a lot to do with my background in the Wooster group I, I started out as a, a, a really task oriented actor and what I love more than anything else is knowing what I have to do and try to do it, doing it with a kind of grace and a kind of openness that something happens to me while I'm doing it. Just like an athlete, it doesn't sound very sexy to run from here to there. But, you know, in that running from here to there, there's a lot going on. 
So uh, sometimes it's good to have a very strong uh, structure, very strong uh, actions. And you've just been working with him on his latest picture, the French Dispatch, which I understand is just wrapped in Angoulême in France, yes. and not a lot is known about it at the moment. What would you like to tell us about it? I'm sort of in the dark too, yeah. because <laughs> no, just because to be honest, uh, I was very happy to be there, but it's it's uh, essentially a cameo. Okay. I worked a couple of days, but very happily. I'm looking forward to this one because it's about journalists. No? Ah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, very much. Yeah. You were talking before about your accent, and uh, so you're from the Midwest, from Wisconsin, uh, and you grew Where up... Where we talk like Fargo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of like that. You yeah. know, hey guys, let's go down to the store and watch them unload the trucks, eh? <laughs> A little bit like that. And all my sisters, I have five sisters, and they all have high voices, and they all do sing song. I love them, but why? <laughs> You've got a lot of brothers and sisters, don't you? Yeah. Eight, I believe. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, so your father is a surgeon, and your mother is a nurse. Yes. It's a big family yeah. in, in the Midwest of America. Was it quite a sort of conservative environment that you grew up yeah, in? Yeah, they were basically Nick, uh, you know, Eisenhower Republicans. Um, but... Then uh, I was toward the end of the family, and I saw, you know, very much, because I was born in 55, so as I was a teenager, I'd see all my brothers and sisters coming home from uh, university, and most of them went to the University of Wisconsin, and that was one of the hotbeds of student activity. So there were all these classic, you know, Christmas nightmarish scenes, you know, where they'd be discussing politics and... You know, my brothers and sisters would be coming back with, you know, off the pigs and stuff like that. <laughs> my parents were like, what? How, how did this happen? You know? So I was witness to that. And uh, I guess that what, the, that what that told me is there's a bigger world out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, in 1976, no, you ran away to join the theater and you arrived it's in New York much, City. Pretty much. I always felt like that. I mean, it was a good place to grow up. It was a, a, like a... A paper mill town of like 50,000 people. It's where it was Joe McCarthy's district. You know, Joe McCarthy from... Uh, Senator the, McCarthy of, yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah, of the House of American McCarthy. Activities Committee. And it's also where Harry Houdini uh, grew up. Yeah. I think and he was Romanian. Too. But <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And a couple of times on yeah. talk shows, I can't go back to Appleton anymore yeah. because yeah, I've yeah. used that joke, basically. <laughs> What was the greatest escape yeah. from Appleton? Yeah. You know. <laughs> and what was Houdini's greatest escape from Appleton? Yeah. That's it. <laughs> so I, I keep on going with this. It's like, <laughs> but so it, it, you know, you, you, you've escaped from there and you've arrived in New York City in 1976, and that's where you became involved with the Worcester Group, uh, a sort of experimental theatre group. Uh, which is known throughout the world, but which really does some very, uh, very avant-garde and very um, genre-pushing types of uh, types of theatre. So um, uh, Elizabeth Leconte, who is the uh, who is your former partner and who is the, the uh, director of the theatre, in an interview with the New York in 2007, she described it, the early days of the Worcester Group as a French farce of exits and exits, a big, close, arty, eccentric, libidinous extended family. Sounds like fun. Yeah. yeah. And, and the joke is, when, when I went to New York, I had already done some uh, theater work, but not, uh, 
not extensive. Um, but I went there and I fully intended to try to be a commercial theater actor. But when I got there, I found myself always going downtown, you know, always going to loft performances, always seeing dance. I found myself being attracted to those people. And I, one of the things that I loved is I wasn't quite down with like an amateur aesthetic, but I was down with the fact that they weren't careerists and they were living their lives like artists, <laughs> you know? And, and being from the Midwest, I suppose, and having the background that I did, this was very exciting to me. I liked being around these people. So I found myself kind of being less and less interested in pursuing a career path and just wanted to be with those people. So I started working very modestly at the Wooster Group, you know, doing carpentry and doing small roles. I fell in love with uh, the director. That, you know, thickened the plot, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it was a, I was there with them for 27 years, and it really shaped who I, who I am as an actor. I mean, it really formed who I was, who I am. And one of the significant things, it's always hard because I don't know what you know about the Wooster Group, for example. But, well, what, actually, but, why don't you describe it for the, yeah, the well, uninitiated? It's hard to describe, but where it's at in the world, and I, I, looking back on it, what I think is interesting, that was a time in New York City. Remember, those are the days of New York City being bankrupt, Bad being dangerous. dangerous, rough, and it was, you know? And there was a huge movement of people just making things and there was a cross fertilization dancers were making films filmmakers were making music actors were dancing it was all mixed up and uh, the Wooster Group was in fact not a company of actors and people that had been trained in the theater they were architects uh, poets musicians uh, seamstresses it was people that um, weren't trained weren't on a career path and they just came together and we, I mean, what they made was pretty weird, wasn't it? So, for instance... Not weird. In, well, in 1984... It, was, it wasn't weird to us. <laughs> in 1984, <laughs> in a play called LSD, Just the High Points, that was a mashup of Arthur Miller's The Crucible with the writings of Timothy Leary and members recounting their own experiences of acid trips. <laughs> um, that sounds kind of weird to me. <laughs> out of context, that does sound kind of weird, but... Uh, <laughs> No, we had, we had unusual uh, rehearsal uh, techniques, for example. <laughs> <laughs> for that show, um, uh, we dropped acid and rehearsed a scene from The Crucible. And as you can imagine, it didn't go so well. But, <laughs> but we recorded it. We filmed it. And when we played back the tape, it was interesting enough that we time-coded it and then reproduced that as part of the performance and turned it basically into a dance, second by second. And, and the, the, the task was to be as truthful to the time code and to recapture the timing of these things happening. And it was fascinating from an actor's point of view because we were at, all at a long table rehearsing and uh, it would be like you'd have a rhythm in your head and you knew when you did that with your hand, I knew two seconds later I would touch that and then I had three seconds to put my hand on my head and then 
I'd look up and then I'd say a line. It was crazy. It was crazy. It really broke it down into a series of actions. And that was real pleasurable uh, to perform uh, and interesting. Yeah, I mean, it became a real mainstay of experimental theatre in New York for, for many years. It, we, we have a, had a bit of it here in London. You came through the Barbican, you used oh, to do Lyft and whatever. Uh, but well, in Europe, it was known as the plays that everyone walked out of. So once again... Elizabeth Leconte to the I New Yorker. Know that. To the New Yorker. Well, Elizabeth Leconte no, said to the I, New Yorker, the Germans walked out of the plays about women, the French walked out of the plays about men, the Scots and the Spaniards and the Austrians walked out, period. <laughs> She's talking about after yeah, I yeah. left. <laughs> <laughs> no, what's that like um, when you're in a production? No, and listen, we were pretty reviled for many years, and what was interesting is it was really through through uh, European co-productions that supported us, mostly from Germany, Belgium, France. Uh, a little bit, we performed some. There was a period where we performed at places like the Tramway in Glasgow, which was a great uh, venue once upon a time. Um, and we performed in London at um, the place that uh, Hitchcock used to, uh, Riverside Studios, Riverside. you know. Funky place, but alive, you know. Uh, off the grid, but good places to perform. Um, but we were pretty much reviled, and then Liz had the smart idea to not allow critics to come because they were writing so terribly about us. I can't get behind this one. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but listen, and so we did that for a little while, and then we started basically making our reputation and our, and our uh, you know, earning our keep, uh, making our nut in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, uh, touring internationally. And then it was then that people in the States started seeing us in another context, like in Paris, you know, at, at the Beaubourg or someplace like that, and, and see us received very well. And then, miracle of miracles, when we came home, now all of a sudden they embraced us. So it was interesting to see that. So, I mean, through the 80s, you're doing a lot of this very crazy theater in Europe and in America, but your big break comes in 1987 with uh, Platoon. Ah, yes, that was important, but uh, when you talk about big break, uh, you know, the big break is the first thing you do. Uh, you know, is, the, is Catherine Bigelow coming and seeing me at a show at the Worcester Group and asking me to do a movie with her. That was... Uh, the initial big break to my mind. I mean, but this one got you an Oscar nomination and worked with Oliver Stone. That's true. That's yeah. true. It, it, raised, it raised the profile, uh, certainly. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Oliver Stone is known as uh, one of the sort of maddest directors to work with. What was that like, putting uh, Platoon together with him? It was great. I mean, I worked with him twice, uh, most notably on Platoon, and I remember when I met him, I thought, wow, I've never met anyone in the movie business like this. Because uh, he, he didn't suffer fools, and, and he had a personal story to tell, and he was going to do anything to tell it. And he was connected to that story. So he got a bunch of kids that had, weren't very experienced, and we went to the Philippines, and they threw us in the jungle, and they got some hardcore military people, many of them veterans of that war, to train us, and we learned how to do things. We learned how to, you know, set an ambush. We learned how to land navigate. We learned how to use those weapons, and then we shot this movie. So it was very, um, it was very special, very particular, uh, and I, I loved doing it. Um, 
And as far as him being a strong personality, I don't know. Uh, it never occurred to me. I mean, he likes to turn up the heat and sometimes he, he likes to push people. I don't normally respond to that. Um, and he probably never tried it with me. He probably has a good sense. Um, but uh, sometimes he felt like if he turned up the heat and he pushed someone, uh, that they would go to a place that they wouldn't go normally. And then when that happened, they'd thank him. <laughs> but I never, I never liked that too much. Uh, when, when people, you know... Right actors push him. He was a Vietnam vet himself. He oh, went yeah. twice, I believe. Say again? I believe he went twice to Vietnam in active I forget. service. I forget, yes. Yeah. And so the, the sort of process of making you go through that... Oh, he had a huge stake in it, you know, and, and not only as actors, but you wanted to honor that, you know? You were telling his story. Also, there were other people there. Uh, uh, Captain Dale Dye... Um, and uh, we got their stories in our head and we tried to, of course, we're not soldiers, we're not, but we did the best we could to try to uh, tell that story. And in America itself, that film had a huge impact and actually really changed the way that people thought about I think Vietnam so. vets. I think so, because really. I'm involved, you never know the truth, you know. <laughs> but um, yes, uh, it, you know, people started talking about their nightmarish personal experiences where before they, they wouldn't dare uh, just because there was so much shame involved and this was not a flag raiser it wasn't talking down the people it, it, the soldiers that served there or the political situation specifically it, that just introduced what an incredibly um, difficult task they had and, and how, how much uh, waste there was. I mean, as, a, as an actor, that must be a, like a wonderful feeling to have taken part in something which had a real sort of social impact like that. It was, yes. Yeah. Another difficult director you've worked with is Lars von Trier. Um, a, great, a great director. His, so you've done a couple of his pictures, but Antichrist is probably the one... Which, uh, in, in which you had the largest role. It's just you and Charlotte Gansborough, really, yeah. uh, in, uh, in that picture. Uh, once again, that was a very controversial movie when that came out. Right. Yeah, it's a strong movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it, it dealt with a lot of taboo subjects. Um, and I, I always think it's funny that he was charged with being a misogynist, where he always takes the woman's point of view. Um, in his movies and this movie is very much about for me anyway it's very much about the, the difficulty of a woman you know well there's many things but one of the strong things is you know sexuality and motherhood and 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 also there's stories about um, you know there's themes of of magic and things that we don't understand and kind of a pragmatic approach represented by my character. 
What's that like when the picture comes out and then it, every, it, it goes crazy and you, you know, the, the people are arguing about it and fighting about it and you've got to face difficult questions in interviews. Do you like being in those kind of movies or, or, and that kind of the, uh, the outrage that they cause or you'd rather do a bit of a quieter one and have a bit of an easier ride? Listen, I think there was outrage just because it's a strong movie and it's um, going to... Uh, as I said, it, it's dealing with some very taboo subjects, but I think they're taboo subjects dealt in a very beautiful way. And if people were smarter, they would just smile and love it. <laughs> no, I, I, the, point, the point is I don't get any particular pleasure out of controversy. For example, Last Temptation of Christ was a beautiful movie, I thought, and was a great experience for me. And it broke my heart a little bit to see that its its reception was very overshadowed by uh, a debate about the movie, uh, mostly by people that hadn't seen it. Well, exactly. Well, so maybe if we could go back to that in in the release of the movie, and it was there was a big sort of. Um as you say, people who hadn't seen the movie were already getting warmed up uh, for it. And then on August the 13th, 1989, on the, um, in the New York Times, it says, after a month of protests and angry rallies by groups that consider the movie blasphemous, Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ opened today to long lines and sold-out theatres. There was a statement from Mother Teresa who said, Our Blessed Mother Mary will see that this film is removed from your land. Uh, Mother Angelica called it sacrilegious. Uh, Catholic and Greek Orthodox bishops they weighed in, the head of the American Family Association said anyone who shows it in their movie theatre we're going to put you on a blacklist for a year and a cinema in Paris that was showing it was actually firebombed Where are all these people uh, when there's uh, slasher movies and porn you know shown (laughs) this is a movie about spirituality well, it is uh, it, definitely. I mean, it sh- the the thing that people really got in a flap about was the fact that it's a movie. It shows um, Jesus, who you play as a fallible human character, and it was the lust, I think, that really got the put him over the top. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he had other, really he, got them there. <laughs> but he had other. He had other real human. Um, not yes. failings, but uh, complexities to his character, didn't he? I think so. I think so. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't, and I knew there was, when the novel came out, there was some controversy, but we were approaching this in such a sincere, thoughtful way, particularly Marty, uh, uh, Martin Scorsese, that I didn't anticipate there being a problem. I think it was, it was at a point, particularly in America, I can't talk about other places. I can't talk about Mother Teresa, but uh, <laughs> she had a hands full. Um, but uh, in America, it was a moment where the religious right needed something to rally around. And uh, they kind of organized their agenda around this movie. So it became, a, a, you know, a pulpit uh, for them to uh, preach from. So it really wasn't about the movie. If they saw the movie, in fact, you know, many places with time, particularly in Catholic countries, uh, the movie's finally shown and, and been accepted even by, you know, uh, the, the Catholic, uh, by Catholic organizations. So, what, so Martin Scorsese, you knew him already before you did that, that picture? I knew his movies, yeah. but I didn't know him. Uh-huh. I didn't know him, no. 
Yeah, and when it's, out of the blue, did you just go to think? Oh, I fancy reading for Jesus. Or how did it work? Uh, you know, you? <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, the funny part is, um, everybody and their brother. I mean, I'm working in the theater and I'm doing movies here and there, you know. Um, but my identity still is I'm a movie. I'm a theater actor. That's what I'm doing day to day, and. I remember everybody and their brother had auditioned for this movie and they never even asked to see me and I never went in on it and they actually even tried to make it but it fell apart uh, and then they went to casting again and auditioned more people they, uh, they auditioned many, many, many people and I just thought well, they aren't interested in me I let it go and I, I also must say at the at the time, I thought, I know, you know, he was going to be a priest and all that, and I know his movies, but really, he's going to do a period movie about Jesus, you know? I thought, wow, that's strange. I wasn't attracted to it. And then uh, one day, I had come back from a movie that wasn't very satisfying. There were lots of difficulties, and I, I came back to the States and was like, oh, I got I to gotta get back to the theater, you know? And I was teaching in a place in... Uh, Massachusetts and staying very modestly at like a bed and breakfast kind of place and there was only one phone and the people that ran the bed and breakfast called me up and said Willem, Willem there's someone on the phone for you <laughs> and it was like my agent said uh, Marty Scorsese wants to see you tomorrow and I said really about what and uh, he, they said last temptation of Christ and I said yeah what role and they said idiot no he wants to you to see you for Jesus and I thought <laughs> that's strange and I went to New York I read the script I loved it and I I said oh now I get it now I get it I had you know I was prejudiced in my imagination about what this movie was because I didn't know the novel and when I read it I said now I know why he wants to do me to do this and I loved it. It was one of uh, the best experiences I've had as far as total immersion, a lot of responsibility. Um, you know, the world really dropped away. We're in Morocco, no trailers, nothing. We were out there. And uh, we were working fast because it was a low-budget movie, um, but he had it planned very well. We had limited equipment, limited time, and I think that was good because it kept us away from, you know, the pageantry or gilding the lily. It was very essential. In fact, before we started it, the one thing he suggested that I looked at was uh, Gospel According to Matthew, the Pasolini. Because he, uh, that he also was the model. In another movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's another story. Yeah. Um, but... No, it was a great experience. And what's that like? So you, obviously I can tell just from you talking, it was an incredible experience on set and you must be so satisfied and, and energized at the end. not for the, the reasons end. you think. Not because you're playing Jesus, because you're not thinking about that. No, I'm mean, seriously. But just, I mean, like, you can tell talking to you in terms of the creative process, it must have been a really satisfying and enriching process. So you're so happy that you've wrapped the film, but then comes this huge firestorm of controversy. What's that like psychologically to deal with? Ah... That's a big question in a funny way. And I, I don't recall. I probably blocked it. <laughs> um, you know, when you do the movie, no matter how much you love it, you have to let it go a little bit. And 
some movies you continue, you know, and you're in the editing room and that sort of thing, particularly as I get older and I collaborate like with Abel. I'm very close with him in post-production. Abel Ferrara, who I've worked with a lot lately. But normally, when I'm done rapping and when I'm done shooting, I go off and make room for something else. So then when the movie comes out, it's like starting a whole something else. You're trying to recall what that experience was. You're trying to support the movie because if you like it, you particularly you want it to be seen. So they're two different things. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Martin Scorsese himself has been in a bit of controversy lately over his pronouncements about superhero movies, and you've done some of these kind of movies themselves, Aquaman, Spider-Man, uh, and whatever, but he got himself into... The, the man movie. movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he got himself into a bit of trouble speaking with Empire Magazine here in London, and he said uh, basically that he, he doesn't watch superhero hero movies. He thinks of them as more like theme parks than cinema, really. He could have written it off as just something careless that he said in a junket when the whole social media thing erupted, but he didn't. He doubled down on it. He wrote an editorial in the New York Times where he, uh, he returned to those themes and expressed them in even stronger language than he had uh, before. It said they're sequels in names, but they're remakes in spirit, and everything in them is sanctioned only because it can't be any other way. Um, he said everything was vetted, modified, revetted, and remodified until they're ready for consumption. So it's not really a. It sounds like you have worked with a lot of great artists and enjoy that kind of that kind of artistry. Do you agree with his comments about those superhero pictures? Ah, agree. Um, I know what he's talking about, but I would not say that because that's not my experience. Because also, I've worked in those movies and I've found pleasure in them. I know their limitations, but you don't judge one kind of movie by the standards of another. It's always different. 
and I think he's in a different position. He's a, he's a director. I'm an actor. I think it really helps to keep me away from a certain kind of preciousness and a certain kind of rigidness if I mix it up. Not as a thing to be versatile, although that's nice, um, but that's not the aim. It's really more to change your game enough that you don't harden into habits as far as your work or uh, you know rigid ways about a movie can be made this way or can only be made that way I think uh, there's lots of rooms for all kinds of movies so I don't disagree I don't agree I know what he's talking about um, but yeah I won't say that for those big popcorn blockbusters, though, it must be nice when loads and loads of people go see your movie. That's good, and that helps you, believe it or not, when you need um, financing um, for smaller movies, yeah. riskier movies, because some people will go, even though it's not the same kind of movie, you have, they have some sort of um, connection to that movie, so it opens things up. Um, and also, just as an actor, for, for example, on Aquaman that I did recently, I still like doing physical things. I still like doing uh, uh, stunts and things like that. And even though you don't see a lot of it in the movie, and I, I can talk to that frustration that they, you know, you shoot a lot and then it gets called down to very little. But for example, that, I get to fly around on wires, you know, for weeks at a time. <laughs> and not just like a boyish fun thing it was challenging it was like an uh, there was an athleticism to it and really kind of it was fun you know I mean we're talking about sometimes being as high as that ceiling and being dropped down on cables you know you're in a harness and all that but just skimming the floor and then going up and then doing barrel rolls you know that's that's fun <laughs> and then when you start to film it and you lay in scenes and you lay in character you know it, there's something there there's something there how did you get into doing your own stunts because lots of actors just say no get someone else in to do it I think it breaks you know it, it's you know the joke is why would you want someone to make love to your wife I mean that's the fun part <laughs> um, sorry <laughs> whoops <laughs> No, it's that's my job. And if, if I step out and someone else does that character for a little while, I, then, then I gotta reclaim it. I gotta get back into it. I gotta, that, you know, it should be one, I, I'm there for an experience, an experience that's, um, you know, filtered through all, th all kinds of things, but that is transparent enough that people can have that experience with me. And if it gets too fragmented, then it's hard to feel that. We're going to come to questions from the audience in a moment. So if you do um, have any questions, do um, think about how you might phrase those quite succinctly. Um, but well, just one last thing I wanted to touch on with you, Willem, was another th issue that came up in Scorsese's um, op-ed. And that was, sort of weirdly, because he was promoting The Irishman, which is a kind of straight-to-Netflix picture in most territories, he wrote actually some very beautiful paragraphs about the power of cinema on the big screen versus watching it you know, on the laptop in bed or whatever. And I wonder what your view on that is as, as an actor. Do you, do you want people to watch your pictures on the phone? Of course not. Uh, but let's go beyond that, not even worry about what I want people to, to do. I, I, I can talk about me. 
I know the power of that thing that he's talking about, of going into a room with a bunch of strangers and having to sit there, having to go there, having to pay attention and receive something and receive it with a bunch of strangers in a room. That is very powerful and uh, can change how you think. If you control the experience too much, if you have the ability to turn it off, if you have the ability to take a phone call, if you don't like the first five minutes and say, well, let's try something else, you know, um, you don't get your feet held to the fire. And I think sometimes in the most, you know, the most uh, rewarding movies, it's not easy. Sometimes really movies are difficult, you know, but if you stick with them, uh, you know, it's like, it's like anything. Sometimes the stuff that feels good right away doesn't sustain you. And the stuff that's hard in the end will sustain you. And in movies are like that. So from an audience point of view, if you have too much control, you have to submit somehow. And to be in a room of other people submitting to a bunch of light on the screen, you know, to basically have a collective dream, I think is cool. When it becomes my movie, my iPhone, my coffee, my, 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 I think that's when um, you miss the connection of the, the storytelling, the sharing of experience, and uh, the possibility to change how you think and break your uh, habits, break the lockstep. It's what Pasolini talked about all the time, you know? He was so prescient. He saw what was going to happen even before these tech, new technologies were present. He saw it coming. It turns people into robots. I mean, come on. People used to look at each other on the streets. Now they almost bump into each other because they're reading the phone. We all know that. I don't like to sound like a new crank. I've got an iPhone too. <laughs> I look at it far too much. But that's a long-winded... Um, Answer to your question. Are you, are you hopeful? I mean, because it's going more and more that way. A lot of more of the money's coming from Netflix, from the streaming services. Yeah. Are you hopeful for the future of the, the big screen? Well, I think we already see some, you know, people's desire for an authentic experience, <laughs> something they can taste. It's getting so far away from us. It's getting so mediated and so controlled. And there's a false freedom because you feel like you can go anywhere, but you go nowhere. There's no choices, and you aren't. You don't, you only go to where you want to go. And I don't think that's good. Sometimes, you, you know, it's not good. Also, that's, that's a great breeding ground for prejudice and hate because then you can really get into a them and us. But if you're forced, that's one of the reasons why I like New York City, you know? Yeah, it's a rich city. Yeah, real estate's a drag. Yeah, it's a business city. But people have to deal with each other. And I find that a place like New York is much more humane than a place like LA where everybody lives in their cars in their homes now you're going to have to deal with some people because we're going to go to the audience um, have we got the first question please uh, hi Willem um, I had hi. a question about your role in oh sorry I had a question about your role in uh, Mr Bean's Holiday the character um, in which on a serious, Mr Bean's Holiday oh on a serious question um, <laughs> That how much of how much of that that kind of director, the serious director, is there in you? Are you interested in making your own movies and that kind of thing, or is that are you just happy to be an actor? Um, Mr. Bean's Holiday was fun. 
And one of the reasons why I did it uh, was uh, 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 Atkinson, uh, Rowan Atkinson. Uh, I loved him in Black Adder. And the idea that I would be working with that guy from Black Adder was like... <laughs> um, no, I, I feel like I'm a filmmaker. I, I collaborate with people. It depends on who the director is. But... Um, and as I get older and I work with younger filmmakers, um, you know, they invite me in a little bit more. And I like that. But on the other hand, I never really want to be a director because maybe you can tell this just by this talk, but there's something uh, where I... I like being a little irresponsible. Uh, I feel free. I'm very responsible in in what I do and also when I'm working on a movie for the whole movie but I don't like being responsible for what stuff means or where we're going because somewhere as an actor one of the pleasures is being an adventurer going someplace reaching for something that you don't know not interpreting not embodying something that you already know but trying to learn something giving yourself something to learn learning it and then trying to see a new way and I, I'm maybe you can do that as a director but the director has to be responsible for this huge group of people to say we're heading this way and as a, an actor I don't have that same responsibility um, this gentleman here Hi. Um, so I'm uh, at drama school and about to go into the industry. And I was wondering if you have any advice for young actors today and maybe what you'd do if you were going into the industry now. Ah. I won't answer the second one because that idea is too frightening. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't. If I was a... I probably wouldn't be doing this. If I, I don't know. Um, I don't know, just practice and, and find, out, find out what you love and uh, go towards it. Even, you know, I'm a great, uh, I believe in apprenticeship. So if there's a company that you love or a filmmaker that you love, just get as close as you can to them. And um, something will rub off and you'll either, you know, get into the fabric of that group making something or you'll learn something that'll take you someplace else so don't wait you know do this to do this don't do this to do that don't make you know don't make long term plans um, you know feed the beast the thing that you like to do uh, feed it feed it and don't wait don't you know make deals with yourself I can take a question from up here uh, this time. Yes. Yeah, you. <laughs> oh, no. oh, sorry. He's... Sorry, I didn't realize. Uh, we'll take this one at the microphone. And if you want to come to the microphone, you can do the next one. Behind. And if so, which 
Um, it depends. <laughs> Always it depends on the situation. I, I think normally that, you know, because you're, you're willing yourself to consider a different set of habits, a different way of thinking, um, you're inviting, you're trying to leave, leave yourself behind and become something else. Uh, once the camera is not there and once the situation is not there, those characters go back into you. Now, you can have a hangover if you're, you know, playing a, a murderer 12 hours a day, even though you're pretending, it's going to enter your dreams. It is going to affect you. But, um, yeah, I think when people have problems hanging on to stuff, it's because they're hanging on. And, of course, when, you, when you're done with something, it's important to let it go. Um, to make room for something else because that's another that's a different kind of lockstep that I think really kills you you know makes you unhappy if you if you uh, feel trapped like trapped in a character or trapped in a set of ways of being sorry I feel bad because that guy could speak and then he couldn't so please go ahead <laughs> hi how are you my name's Arthur Okay. Um, you're incredible, great shape, uh, got really youthful spirits about you. Thank you. I was hoping you could share with us one or two secrets of good health. <laughs> secrets of good? Good health. Health. Uh, uh, I don't know. Must be all that clean living. Don't be a from jerk. <laughs> Try not to be a jerk. <laughs> um, develop a practice. A daily practice, whether it's a physical practice, I personally do a yoga practice for 35 years, and that probably saves me. Um, but I have a practice, whatever it is, that you, it can be your time and uh, uh, sets the tone for the day, preferably in the morning. And be a vegetarian. Um, let's have a question from a woman this time. We've had lots of men. Uh, let's, oh, you're very keen. Let's, yeah, yeah. Um. Yes, I'm a woman. I'm, I'm a director, and um, I'm very interested to ask you. You've done a lot of films about artists and creative people, and what is it that draws you to the character of an artist? They have unusual lives. And um, what they do, there's no, there's no rule book. I mean, that's kind of the whole point. <laughs> Finding ways to express their inner thoughts through their, their particular discipline. And I think that interests me in all people. And I think, um, but an artist, it becomes more transparent because that, that, that is on the table. That's what they're about. But I, I, I think that interests me in all people, you know, how people make strategies on how to live and, and how they create belief systems and what they cling to and what they don't need and what they get from other people and what is really original thinking. And I think with artists, 
because often they're they're searching for that that original thought, that original gesture, that original articulation of something that's particular to them. I'm attracted to that because I want to learn how to do that someday. <laughs> I've, um, I know you also. So do you hang out with artists? Because I know you're quite good friends with Jeff Koons, and I always like the idea of you <laughs> yeah, two yeah. hanging out. Um, you know, downtown. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, yeah, I, I probably spent a lot of time in. Painting studios and dance studios, um, probably more than theater, and uh, probably knew more performance artists than I knew actors, more, more musicians than I knew actors. So that's just kind of where I lived. And then once you start working, just socially, I tend to connect the dots. Um, let's have one over here. How, the movie how, how was the movie industry changed by the beginning of the Me Too movement? Ah, trying to figure that one out. It's changed a lot because, um, for example, I did a movie recently, and before you could work, it's required that you take a course online about proper um, proper conduct. Conduct. That didn't happen before. Um, So people are making efforts to uh, be conscious of abuses and uh, being conscientious also about, um, just in general, there's a a new sense of, um, you know, breaking up the old boy network and making not only the making films, but also what films are about more representative of a larger group of people. They're, that's all connected because I think that's connected to uh, somewhat to these people that uh, went public with abuses in the past and there's an effort to try to address those. So what that all means, I don't know because it's in, uh, you know, the, the conversation is happening and I, I'm not just being politic. I really don't know how deeply it changes. Yeah. Um, let's have one here. Uh, hi. Uh, first, thanks for the talk. But um, my question would be, since you've seen the success of films like uh, Joker and Joaquin Phoenix's method acting, do you think it requires a certain type of actor or maybe a certain type of role uh, to method act? Um, when you talk about method acting, I'm always confused because I don't know what that is. Not, I think I know what most people are talking about when they talk about method acting. I really don't know. I wasn't trained that way. And um, I, when I was a student, and probably since then, I've read Stanislavski. That's one thing. The method is something else. Um, just for me, I always think of uh, substitution and emotional recall, and that's not something that I particularly respond to. Um, I respond to pretending. (laughs) Um, Like if at your mother's funeral, 
do you make an anticipation that you're supposed to cry there and then because you're going to cry you've got to think of something sad whether it's your mother or your your mother's death or your dead puppy or whatever that takes you out of the scene it you aren't applying yourself to the real situation i think there's a for me personally you pretend you look there and uh, say oh if you know you look at the details you look at the coffin you imagine I, that does it for me much better than taking me out of the scene because then that's the difference between really exploring something and having an, uh, an experience and interpreting something I think that's just one aspect of the method that I'm familiar with that doesn't uh, I don't respond to and uh, Joaquin's a good actor he's, he's a great actor he's not here he should answer the question for you <laughs> We're going to have one last question. Uh, let's take uh, this one here. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Thank hi. you. Um, my question is: um, Do you have any projects either on like the personal side or in the working side that you've not done yet, which you'd like to do? Thanks. I don't initiate projects so much. I'm like a parasite. <laughs> I glom onto someone else's and try to help them do that. It gets back to that thing about, you know, if there's something that I want to do, it usually completes itself. Particularly when I was younger, there were moments sometimes where I felt like I wasn't having good opportunities. I thought, well, if you don't have good opportunities, you better start making them for yourself. So then I flirted with trying to initiate projects, and it never felt right, because usually... They completed themselves in my head as I prepared for them. I need something to take, you know, where, where I, I, I want to get away from my agenda. Ultimately, it's my agenda to, to try to think different things. You know, you re, I'm, I sound like a broken record, right? But... Uh, Really, the trick is always to break the habit, break the habit, feel again, wake up, wake up, wake up. That's the key. That's really the answer to the acting question. <laughs> you know, work on being a human being, uh, work on waking up. That's what's important. And I can't do that if I'm imagining something that's going to serve my interests. I prefer to look at something outside of me and go towards it and try to learn something. Which, when I say it, sounds kind of noble. It's not. It's totally selfish because it's about saving yourself from a certain kind of uh, control and staleness of habit. What a fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much, Willem Defoe. Thank you.